Hi, I'm Kim Carson. And I'm Peter Klein. And this is We Had No Idea. Episode 27 and a half. Well, 27 and the rest of it? Right. All right. We come to you from Mokinsis, and we acknowledge that we get the privilege of living and producing this show on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Tsutsuna Nations, the Iahe Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation, Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. You can find out what native lands you're on by looking at native-land.ca. Our sources for this show are still history.com, <laughs> NPR, Statista. Statista.com, <laughs> Britannica, and Biography.com. All right, all right. So, um, we had an issue. Mm-hmm. We had an issue uh, about halfway through our second uh, Woman of History. Uh, something just went haywire, and then you could hear it sounded like four people were doing the show. Right. But it was just the two of us, and two of the people that were the two of us were saying the same things. Yes. Yeah, more of us is a good thing, but not in that way. That would Not be in that way. It yeah. was unbearable. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, we are having to do a, a part two now here as we are um, probably wanting to do this a little sooner, but, you know, life happens. Life so happens. This is why is... we record on Tuesdays, because our lives are busy. Yeah. And now, based off of what we were watching on television yesterday, this is Kim and Peter in the morning. <laughs> and today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you, thank you for uh, downloading, rating, reviewing, uh, coming with us on this journey of figuring out audio, blah, blah, blue, <laughs> and we appreciate you um, just downloading and tuning in and uh, wanting more episodes, so mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah. You can always email us at wehadnoideapodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Instagram at wehadnoideapodcast. So should we get back into it? Let's get back into it. Uh, right. I think, I believe I cut you off when you said, all right, our next uh, woman up is Cleopatra. <laughs> the fun thing is we're not going to get any of these names anymore right the second time around. No, I um, wish that we had saved. I just, uh, it made me so mad to listen to the audio from the last one that I straight up deleted it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can't even go back to hear if we've improved or gotten worse at saying some of these names yes (laughs) uh but i have cleopatra down Mm. um cleopatra the seventh ruled ancient egypt for almost three decades first with her father then her two younger brothers and finally with her son uh born in either 70 or 69 bce which is before common era um again note taking not fantastic back then yeah so a lot of these are it happened here ish yeah uh in 51 bce ish upon the apparently natural death of her father which was how it was put in the research uh the egyptian throne was passed to 18 year old cleopatra and her 10 year old brother ptolemy the 13th two years after the siblings ascension to the throne ptolemy's advisors acted against cleopatra who was forced to flee egypt for syria She put together an army of mercenaries and returned the following year to face her brother's forces in a civil war. Meanwhile, after allowing the Roman general Pompey to be murdered, Ptolemy XIII welcomed the arrival of Pompey's rival, Julius Caesar, to Alexandria. Mm. The names back then are awesome. Yeah. In order to help her cause, Cleopatra sought Caesar's support, reportedly smuggling herself into the royal palace to plead her case with him. Hold on. Okay. I just had a thought. This is so 
Um, this has nothing to do with this. Oh, okay, you said good. that the names were so cool back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, in The Walking Dead, they make a community called Alexandria, and I wonder if they named it that because of this. Well, that would seem like a wild coincidence otherwise. Yeah, right? Sorry, that was a really weird noise my water bottle just made. We'll <laughs> keep that in. Record scratch. <laughs> Look, you know uh, what? We love sounds being weird in our podcast. Yeah, no so. kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's probably going to throw the audio off, and my computer's just going to explode. Yeah. Sorry, so after four months of war between Caesar's outnumbered forces and those of Ptolemy Thirteenth, Roman reinforcements arrived. Ptolemy was forced to flee Exalexandria. Exalandria. Alexandria. It's like not, that's the easiest mm. name we have in this. Yeah, if you're, if you're stumbling wow. on Alexandria, we have a problem. Cool. Kim and Peter was... in the morning. <laughs> he was forced to flee Exalexandria. Uh, <laughs> I'm leaving this all in. To flee Alexandria. I don't know why I want to keep saying ex-Alexandria. Well, he was kind of exiled, <laughs> so you could do like a play on words. Like it was ex-Alexandria oh or whatever. Oh my goodness. Ptolemy was also believed to have drowned in the Nile River. Entering Alexandria as an unpopular conqueror, Caesar restored the throne to the equally unpopular Cleopatra and her even younger brother, Ptolemy the Fourteenth, who was 13 years old. Okay, so that there was, we were laughing and stuff in the middle of it, but just to recap, there was a war. Ptolemy the Thirteenth got sent out. While he got sent out, drowned he in a river. He dead. Yep. He was unalived. Wow. So another Ptolemy, luckily, was there to take the place. Mm-hmm, the Fourteenth. Yes, with... Cleopatra, Caesar remained in Egypt with Cleopatra for a time, and around 47 BCE, she gave birth to a son, Ptolemy Caesar. What a great naming chain. <laughs> he was believed to be Caesar's child. I mean, spoiler alert, that's mm-hmm. in the name. And was known by the Egyptian people as Caesarian or Little Caesar. <laughs> my little C section. <laughs> Who's my little C section? <laughs> It's fun. You, we've done this now twice. You've laughed at that one both times. And each time I'm like, well, little Caesar because of the pizza chain is funnier to me. But Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sometime in 46 BCE, Cleopatra traveled with Ptolemy Fourteenth and Caesarian to Rome <laughs> to visit Caesar, who had returned earlier. After Caesar was murdered about two years later, Cleopatra went back to Egypt. Ptolemy XIV was killed soon after, probably, possibly, by Cleopatra's agents. And the three-year-old Caesarian was named co-regent with his mother as Ptolemy XV. Wow. So it's too bad he doesn't get to live a whole lot of his life as Caesarian. Also, his dad was killed. Um, (laughs) But now he is in charge at three years old. Well, he was Ptolemy Caesar, right? They just were like, you know what? We got to pick one of these. Yeah. You can't be both anymore. Mm -hmm. So instead, we're going to give you the name that 14 others have had before you. Yep, totally. (laughs) A conflict was raging in Rome between a second trio of Caesar's allies, Mark Antony, Octavian, and Lepidus, and his assassins, Brutus and Cassius. Both sides asked for Egyptian support, and after some stalling, Cleopatra sent four Roman legions stationed in Egypt by Caesar to support his allies. In 42 BCE, after defeating the forces of Brutus and Cassius in the battles of Philippi, uh, Mark Antony and Octavian divided power in Rome. Antony ends up joining Cleopatra in Egypt, leaving behind his third wife, Fulvia, and their children in Rome. 
In 40 BCE, Cleopatra gave birth to twins, Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Selene. So I don't think Fulvia's in the picture no more. Oh, no. Mm. Yep. No. After Fulvia took ill and died. There she <laughs> dies. Yep. <laughs> Antony was forced to prove his loyalty to Octavian by making a diplomatic marriage with Octavian's half-sister, another great naming chain, Octavia. Mm-hmm. Egypt grew more prosperous under Cleopatra's rule, and in 37 BCE, Antony again met with Cleopatra to obtain funds for his long-delayed military campaign against the kingdom of Parthia. In exchange, he agreed to return much of Egypt's eastern empire, including Cyprus, Crete, Libya, Jericho, and large portions of Syria and Lebanon. They again became lovers, and Cleopatra gave birth to another son, Ptolemy Philadelphos, in 36 BCE. She's had like a billion kids in six years. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. In 40 BCE, she gives birth to twins. Four years later. Another one. Another one. <laughs> uh, Antony publicly rejected his wife Octavia's efforts to rejoin him and instead stays with Cleopatra. Antony declares Caesarian as the rightful heir to the Egyptian throne. He's like nine right now. <laughs> and Octavian, who is rather upset about the ghosting of his sister's uh, about it, about the ghosting of his sister spreads the sweet, sweet propaganda about Antony, and now he's not loyal to Rome, so Antony is stripped of all of his status, and Octavian's armies declare war on Cleopatra and Antony and absolutely destroy them. Wow. During the battles, Antony heard a rumor that Cleopatra had committed suicide, so he fell on his sword, which... They say in the um, in all of the research, that's the term that is used. I don't know if that's a figurative, right? he killed himself, or if that's literally how he done did it, but like he, he done like, did oh, it. He was like, ah, shucks, and went to kick rocks, and then just yeah. like tripped. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, <laughs> and he died just as news derived that that rumor had been false. But it does become true later when in 30 BCE, after burning Antony somewhere that no one has been able... Burning. That says burning. It does say burning. Do we mean burying? Probably. Hmm. After burying Antony somewhere that no one has been able to find, Cleopatra met with Octavian, then went and killed herself, maybe, with a poisonous snake known as the Asp, a symbol of divine royalty. She was 39. She was buried with Antony in their tombs, which have never been found. Dun, dun. But it is kind of a nice, like, fuck you. Yeah. To to anyone who comes after her. Like, it was, like, her last thing that she did. Like, you may have won the war, but you will never get to find my grave. Right. Ooh. Girl. Yeah. So a lot happened. Um, Again, she was 39 when yeah. she died. Yeah. She, like, all this started when she was 18. So all of that we just covered was 21 years. Totally. And she, like, like we said in the beginning, she ruled... Egypt with her father before any of this happened. He died, and then it was just her and yeah. the brothers. Yeah. Woo. What a life. What yeah. a lived life. I wonder if I mean, there's an easy way. I mean, we did do an episode on this, so I probably could just go back. But it's like, was it just like all calm and fine, and then this dude dies, and then it's just 21 years of the Jerry Springer show? Well, I feel like, too, everyone keeps, uh, quote unquote, naturally or mysteriously dying. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's a record-keeping issue or if people just were assassinated a lot. Probably, yeah. I feel like assassinations happened a lot more yeah, before, it, like, mm, the 90s. It does seem like... Like 1989 and literally all backwards of time <laughs> from there. 
assassinations. Right. Like crazy. Um, it does kind of seem like back in those days, like now it's a last case extremist thing. Back then it was just like a problem solving measure. Totally. It's, it's like, like, yeah, I really like, like this guy. I, I married her, but I'd rather be with this girl. So the only logical thing to do is to assassinate this person. Or accuse her of being a witch. Right. Also of that. Course. Yeah, which is, I guess, indirect assassination. <laughs> yeah. Um. So it was at this point in the research, because this was the first one that I researched. And I was like, this show is going to be eight hours long. But then you do come to realize that a lot more things happened back then than happened now. Like, we going through some of these other ones, it was, well, this person voted on this thing and this thing and this thing. So it's not, well, this was an assassination and then they had to get an army of mercenaries together. It's like, things have kind of calmed down since yeah. uh, 39 BCE. <laughs> since a different era ago. Yeah. So up next on the docket, and again, much less assassinating in this one, is Sirimavo Bandarnaiki. Um, she, well, we will get into it. Uh, her husband became prime minister of Sri Lanka in 1956, I said there was muscle oh assassinating God. in there, but not, <laughs> it's not, it's not zero, uh, because he was assassinated in 1959. <laughs> uh, I'm not laughing at his assassination. <laughs> yes. Um, the Sri Lankan Freedom Party named her as the party leader. The SLFP won a decisive victory at the general election in 1960, and she became the first elected leader of a country, as far as the history books could tell. Right. Uh, she became first prime female. minister. Yes. Yeah, sorry. First female. Yeah, yeah. Um, Banner Nike carried on her husband's program of socialist uh, economic policies, neutrality in international relations, and the active encouragement of the Buddhist religion and of Sinhalese language and culture. Her government nationalized various economic enterprises and enforced a law making Sinhalese the sole official language. By 1964, an economic crisis and the SLP's coalition with the Marxist Lankan Sama Samaja Party, hmm. or the Ceylon Socialist Party, had eroded popular support for her government, which was resoundingly defeated in 1965. Wow. It's a short five years. Mm-hmm. In 1970, however, her socialist coalition, the United Front, regained power and, as prime minister, Bandarnaiki pursued more radical policies. While reducing inequalities of wealth, Bandarnaiki's socialist policies had once again caused economic issues, and her government's support of Buddhism and the Sinhalese language had helped alienate the country's large Tamil minority. Which, when I read this the first time, too, I found there to be an oxymoron in large Tamil minority, but this is a lot of people we're talking about. Mm -hmm. The failure to deal with ethnic rivalries and economic di distress, economic distress, led in the election of 1977 to the SLFPs retaining only eight of the 168 seats of the National Assembly, and Banner Nike was replaced as prime minister. Banner Nike's children, in the meantime, had become major political figures within the SLFP. Her son, Anura, was first elected to parliament in 1977 and had become the leader of the SLFP's right-wing faction in 1984. He was frustrated in his bid to become party leader, however, by his sister, Chandrika Bandarnaiki Kumaratunga, who held left-wing views and was favored by their mother for the leadership. Whoopsies. In response, awkward, Anura defected the SLFP and joined the rival United National Party, or the UNP, in 1993. Um, <laughs> Chandrika had been active in the SLFP before marrying a film actor in 1978. 
Jesus. He was assassinated in 1988. <laughs> and she what did was, I say? 89 and before. Yeah. No, you're right. This one oh, just in under boy. the wire. Um, she shoot. Uh, she shout. She shout. <laughs> <laughs> she soon came to head its left-wing faction, and a string of electoral victories propelled her to the leadership of an SLFP-based ba- coalition that won the parliamentary elections of August of 1994. Chandrika became prime minister, and in November of that year, she won the presidential election over the UNNP candidate, becoming the f- country's first female president. Chandrika appointed her mother, Sirimavo, to serve as prime minister in her new government, which mounted a major military campaign against Tamil separatists in 1995. Failing health forced Sirimavo to resign her post in August of 2000, shortly after voting in the October parliamentary elections. Um, she suffered a heart attack and died. Sri Lanka is one of just 13 countries that has had more than one woman in the highest power, uh, highest position of executive power. So, wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, and I also, I feel like this is a good point to say, um, we have Margaret Thatcher coming up next. Mm-hmm. And just that last little bit about how um, they mounted a military campaign against Tamil separatists. Mm-hmm. Um, these are like female leaders this doesn't necessarily mean that they were nice right. or that they were excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that, like, I, I think that a lot of times we think, like, oh, like, if it's a woman leader, like, they'll be, you know, they'll be the opposite of a man or they'll be really great at it. And it's like, women are human as well. Yeah. Sometimes we're not good at stuff. <laughs> yes. Um. So... I just want to go ahead and say that before we get into Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) This is by no means a praise of all of these women. It's just uh, that they were women and they led. Yeah. (laughs) So, Margaret, the Iron Lady Thatcher. Sounds like a wrestling name. Oh, totally. Like she's going to definitely use the chair on someone. Yeah. Uh, She was born in 1925 in Grantham, England. Two years after graduating from Oxford, Thatcher ran as the conservative candidate for a Dartford parliamentary seat in the 1950s. Nineteen fifties elections. Thatcher knew from the start that it would be nearly impossible to win the position away from the Liberal Labour Party. Uh, she did earn the respect of her political party peers with her speeches, though. When Conservatives returned to office uh, f- in June of nineteen seventy, Thatcher was appointed Secretary of State for Education and Science and was given the nickname Thatcher Milk Snatcher after she got rid of the Universal Free School Milk Scheme. So again, I say, yeah, we're not necessarily super proud of of some of the things that these leaders have done. They just were the first of their kind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she found her position frustrating, not because of all the bad press around her actions, but because she had difficulty getting Prime Minister Edward Heath to listen to her ideas. So she wasn't, you know, she she wasn't upset because she was being shitty. Yeah. She was upset because she couldn't be more shitty. Right. Yeah. Uh, she I'm, I'm was, not upset I'm being shitty. I'm mad you're not listening to my shitty ideas. Yeah, I want more of my shit to be shit. Yeah. She was quoted saying, I don't think there will be a woman prime minister in my lifetime during a 1973 television appearance. 
So, not only is she taking milk away from children, she's also not a great predictor of the future. Yeah. She was elected leader of the Conservative Party in 1975. A mere two years later. Mm -hmm. Beating out Heath for the position. With this victory, Thatcher became the first woman to serve as the opposition leader in the House of Commons. England was in a time of economic and political turmoil, with the government nearly bankrupt, unemployment on the rise, and conflicts with labor unions. This instability helped return conservatives to power in 1979. As party leader, Thatcher made history in May when she was appointed Britain's first female prime minister. So yeah. six years after. Uh, she said that there wouldn't be one, she was one. Yep. As prime minister, uh, prime minister, she was best known for her destruction of Britain's traditional industries through her attacks on labor organizations such as the Miners' Union and for the massive privatization of social housing and public transport. You know what's really great? Huh? Privatizing social programs. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you just love to see it? Mm, yeah, beautiful thing. It's <laughs> uh, not the point. Thatcher faced a military challenge during her first term. In April of 1982, Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands. This British territory had long been a source of conflict between the two nations, as the islands are located off the co uh, coast of Argentina. Mm. Thatcher sent British troops to the territory to retake the islands in what was uh, in what became known as the creatively named Falklands War. Ah, yes. Argentina surrendered in June of 1982. It's like a two-month war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she doesn't fuck around, man. Gonna go in, blast some shit, and that's gonna be it. Right. In her second term, spoiler alert, she gets reelected. Mm -hmm. From 83 to 87, Thatcher handled a number of conflicts and crises. The most jarring of which may have been the assassination attempt against her. Oh, in 1984. <laughs> but boom, baby, it's still true. Uh, in a plot by the Irish Republic Army, she was meant to be killed. Are you still laughing at me? <laughs> no, I just, I knew how the assassination attempt was. And when you went, ba-boom, it was like, well, yeah, that was kind of the point. <laughs> oh, I didn't even, okay, nobody died so that we can leave this right. joke in. That was such a bad uh, <laughs> misspeak. Miss. Anyways, she was meant to be killed by a bomb, Planted in the conservative conference in Brighton in October, undaunted and unharmed, Thatcher insisted that the conference continue and gave a speech the following day. The boom, baby. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, that's fucking terrible. <laughs> um, also, again, this was one that I left in word for word because I loved. Thatcher handled a number of conflicts and crises, the most jarring of which may have been may <laughs> the assassination <laughs> attempt against her in 1984. Yeah. Like, I don't know what would have topped that. But apparently there's a couple front runners uh, along the way because if that's just a may have been, that's hilarious. You know what? Hmm. Maybe may if someone had tried to assassinate her past 1989, maybe that would have been the biggest That would have been crisis. a bit more jarring, yeah. That would have been way more jarring because yeah. they don't happen anymore. No. Oof. As for foreign policy, Thatcher met with Mikhail Gorbachev, the Soviet leader, in 1984. That same year, she signed an agreement with the Chinese government regarding the future of Hong Kong. Publicly, Thatcher voiced her support for Ronald Reagan's air raids of Libya in 1986 and allowed U.S. forces to use British bases to help carry out the attack. Returning for a third term in 1987, Thatcher sought to implement a standard <laughs> educational curriculum across the nation and make changes to the country's socialized medical system. 
However, she lost quite a bit of support due to her efforts to implement a fixed-rate local tax, labeled a poll tax by many she sought to disenfranchise, um, or sorry, labeled a poll tax by many since she sought to disenfranchise those who did not pay it. Hugely unpopular. This policy led to public protests and caused dissension within her party. Wow. Taxes will do that. Mm-hmm. Thatcher initially pressed on for party leadership in 1990, but eventually yielded to pressure from party members and announced her resignation in 1990. Not long after leaving office, Thatcher was appointed to the House of Lords as Baroness Thatcher of Kesteven in 1992. Thatcher died in 2013 at the age of 87. She was not assassinated. No, can confirm. (laughs) Can confirm it happened in the... 2000, so. Right, yeah. It couldn't have been an assassination. <laughs> Literally couldn't have been. No, no, not a chance. <laughs> uh, all right. Up next on the docket is Angela Merkel. Mm. After the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. After Mer- the fall of the Berlin Wall. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's fine. Um, Merkel joined the newly founded Democratic Awakening and in February of 1990 became the party's press spokesperson. Again, public party names everywhere else are amazing. The most creative we get Mm -hmm. in Canada is the new Democrat Party. Aside from that, it's like, well, what should our party be called? Well, we're liberals. Done. Do you think at any point the NDP was just the DP? (laughs) They're just the Democrat Party? (laughs) They couldn't call themselves the DP. (laughs) Nope, they sure couldn't, Kim. Um, Your parents listen to this. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> Those socialists will get you from both. Anyway, uh, that month, the party joined the Conservative Alliance for Germany, a coalition with the German Social Union and the Christian Democratic Union. Merkel became oh, deputy spokesperson. You have to answer that phone call this week. No. Merkel became deputy spokesperson of the government of Lothar de Maizières. She joined the CDU, Christian Democratic Union, in August of 1990. That party merged with its Western counterpart on October 1st, if you will recall. That is the day before the reunification of Germany. Hmm. Oh, it's me now. I've yeah. stopped laughing. Okay, you're okay? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not okay. Uh, In the first post-reunification election in December of 1990, Merkel won a seat in the Bundestag, or Lower House of Parliament. She was appointed Minister for Women and Youth by Chancellor uh, Helmut Kohl in 1991. That's an interesting grouping. Yeah, it's the the people who get saved from sinking ships. Yes, you are are the minister of the first to be evacuated during a crisis. (laughs) Women and youth. (laughs) Uh, after the 1994 election, Merkel became Minister of Environment, Conservation, and Reactor Safety. <laughs> I, I suppose. Do those go together? Well, I They mean, don't go together like women and youth, I'll tell no, you that. If, but if reactor safety is off, I feel like mini- or environment and conservation efforts do um, face quite a bit of peril. So you, you know, can, like, one can greatly affect the other two. Reactor safety does fit in there because when they go, they go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. All right. And she presided over the first United Nations Climate Conference in Berlin in 1995. In September of 1998, the CDU was ousted by Gerard Schroeder and the Social Democratic Party of Germany, SPD. Merkel was elected Secretary General of the CDU uh, in that same year. 
Late in that year, a financial scandal hit the CDU and Cole was implicated uh, in the acceptance and use of illegal campaign contributions. In an open letter published on December 22nd, Merkel, who had been a protege of Cole, who Cole gave her an opportunity, called for the party to make a fresh start without him. <laughs> Merkel's stance greatly increased her popularity with the German public, although not amongst Cole supporters, or I would imagine with Cole himself. Yeah. Um, on April 10th, 2000, Merkel was elected head of the CDU, becoming the first woman and first non-Catholic to lead the party. As CDU leader, Merkel faced the lingering effects of the finance scandal and a divided party. Although Merkel had hoped to stand as a candidate for chancellor in 2002, a majority of her party expressed a preference of Edmund Stoiber of the Christian Social Union, the CDU's sister party in Bavaria. After the CDU-CSU narrowly lost the election, Merkel became leader of the opposition. Hmm. So we're going to try it with this guy. He didn't work. Okay, you are now in You charge. get your shot. Yes. As support for the SPD wavered, Schroeder called for an early general election to be held in September of 2005. After we read all these dates that are like 18-something and 19-something, mm -hmm. whenever I see a 2000 year, I always want to go 20 and 5. I always want to say it like I'm French. Right. <laughs> but in English. Yeah. Uh, in September 2005, and the result was a virtual stalemate. The CDU-CSU won 35.2% of the votes, beating the incumbent SPD by just 1%. Don't tell me your vote doesn't count. Yeah. Don't ever tell me that. Uh, both parties looked for allies in an attempt to form a government, but months of negotiations proved fruitless. Eventually, the CDU, CSU, and the SPD settled on a grand, co grand coalition government with Merkel at its head. On November of 2005, Merkel took office as chancellor, becoming the first woman, the first East German, and, at age 51, the youngest person to hold the office. And uh, again, spoiler alert, it's an office she still holds. So I would imagine that record still stands yeah, to this day. Yeah, she is still yes. the... Well, she might now not be the youngest, but her record of being the youngest at the time still stands. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. In 2000... Yeah, that's fun. Good uh, for her. Yeah. She emphatically won in 2009, and Merkel was able to form a government with her preferred partner, the classical liberal Freedom Democratic Party. Mm. Merkel's second term was largely characterized by her personal role in the response to the Eurozone debt crisis, along with French President Nicolas Sarkozy. Merkel championed austerity as the path to recovery for Europe's damaged economy. Uh, her most visible success in that area was in 2013, when she made the governments that agreed to operate within specific balanced budget benchmarks. B -b 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 yeah, so she's like, hey, y'all are spending like crazy. This is how she basically gave the countries their allowance. She was like, here's the budget. Stick to it. Mm -hmm. Come, come on. Uh, in 2014, as pro-Russian gunmen seized territory in eastern Ukraine, Merkel joined other Western leaders in accusing Russia of directly causing the conflict. She spearheaded EU efforts to enact sanctions against Russia and participated in numerous discussions in an effort to restore peace to the region. Do you remember when that happened? The yes, absolutely. Yeah, that 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 seemed like something that just doesn't happen now. Like right, we don't I'm, hear of I'm sure it happens, but we just don't hear of countries invading other countries and now this is my In name. 2014, like yeah. someone went into another country and was like this is this is my area now. Yeah, what? I am the captain now. What? <laughs> Look into my eyes. Yeah. Like yeah, I just you just don't hear of it happening. Mm -hmm. And just it doesn't seem like something that happens this recently in our history. 
Yeah. Merkel was also faced with Europe's gravest refugee crisis since World War II, and when hundreds of thousands of migrants fleeing conflicts in Syria, Afghanistan, and elsewhere flocked to the EU. Although she maintained that Germany would keep its borders open in the face of the humanitarian emergency, Merkel temporarily suspended the Schengen Agreement and reintroduced border controls with Austria in September of 2015. More than 1 million migrants entered Germany in 2015, and Merkel's party paid a steep political price for her stance on refugees. As the backlash against migrants manifested itself in street protests and at the ballot box, the right-wing alternative for Germany, Alternative for Deutschland, or AFD, was among the parties to capitalize on the rising tide of populism and xenophobia in Europe. In September 2016, the AFD placed second ahead of the CDU in regional elections in Merkel's home state. Two weeks later, the CDU was ousted from local governing coalition in Berlin when it posted its worst ever electoral performance in the capital. Elsewhere, appeals to nationalism had fueled the successful Yes campaign on the UK's Brexit referendum in June of 2016 and propelled... Donald Trump to victory in the U.S. presidential election, November 2016. But Merkel continued to stay in the center as she announced that she would seek a fourth term. She would eventually win that fourth term, but the major parties in Germany had poor showings with the AFD finishing a strong third, causing months of negotiations that we don't totally understand. Yeah, it does seem weird. Like, I I, I should definitely look into it more, but it kind of seems like if you form a minority government, you have to negotiate with the other parties so that you come up with what would be a majority. But that is just me looking at it from a, a distance. But it does seem like, okay, there's a close vote. Now you have to negotiate for months. So, huh. um, so yes, that is um, the, the story of a current day German leader. Hmm. Or world leader, sorry. World leader, But she yeah. is German as well. But that's not the Right, point. totally. Yeah. yeah. A German leader podcast would be a lot different. I don't think we should go there. <laughs> Okay, so next we have Michelle Obama. Yay! Is a lawyer and writer who was the first lady of the United States from 2009 to 2017. She is the wife of the 44th U.S. President Barack Obama. What? (laughs) What? (laughs) It's why they had the same last name. Oh, my God. She took his name. Uh, As First Lady, Michelle focused her attention on social issues such as poverty, health, living, and education. Or healthy living, sorry, and education. Her 2018 memoir, Becoming, discusses the experiences that shaped her from her childhood in Chicago to her years living in the White House. Following in her older brother's footsteps, Michelle attended Princeton University, graduating in 1985 with a BA in sociology. She went on to study law at Harvard Law School because Princeton wasn't, uh, you know impressive enough, Mm -hmm. where she took part in demonstrations calling for the enrollment of hiring of more minority students as and professors. She was awarded her JD in 1988. Michelle and Brock married at Trinity United Church uh, in 1992. They had met in 89 at Michelle's first job as a lawyer at the Chicago firm Sidley Austin. Sidley Austin. Sidley Austin. (laughs) Her future husband was a summer intern to whom Michelle was assigned as an advisor. On suits. It suits. Uh, initially, Michelle refused to date Barack, believing that a work relationship would make the romance. Uh, it just like wouldn't be cool. But the heart wants what it wants. She eventually relented and the couple soon fell in love. After two years of dating, Barack proposed. 
She works on a ton of public service jobs through the 90s and finally in 2005 was appointed Vice President for Community and External Affairs at the University of Chicago Medical Center, where she continued to work part-time until shortly before her husband's inauguration as president. She also served as a board member for the prestigious Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Barack eventually won the nomination and was elected President of the United States, inaugurated in 2009 and was re-elected in 2012. Along the way, Michelle was integral to the campaign trail, gave many speeches along the way, one of the most notable in September of 2012. Michelle delivered a speech at the Democratic National Convention saying, Every day the people I meet inspire me. Every day they make me proud. Every day they remind me how blessed we are to live in the greatest nation on earth. Serving as your first lady is an honor and a privilege. Mm. She's also a fashion icon. Yes. Icon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she is, like, so smart. Such a hard worker. Mm -hmm. Like, when we were doing the research for this, and it's like, oh, she went to Princeton, and then she went to Harvard Law. I'm like, what? Yeah. Is she a movie? (laughs) So, that's Michelle Obama. Right. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, And then, uh, I would say that this was probably the, 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 the person that... mm, made us do this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we had a, a, an election in Canada here not too long ago. A federal election. Yes, you wouldn't know it by looking at the results, but <laughs> um, we did have one. And I thought, well, we should do one on the uh, the, the first Canadian female prime minister because uh, that's not really something that I think is all that widely known. Like it was just kind of glossed over in my history class. It was totally. like, these are prime ministers of Canada. One of them, Kim Campbell's like, wait, 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 wait. One of these things is not, not like the, the other. other and so uh, I thought, well, we should do we should do a show on her. And uh, to be perfectly frank, uh, there was probably not enough on there her. There was definitely to, not enough. Yeah. So we lumped it in with a, a number of other ones. But Kim, short for Avril Phaedra Campbell. Yeah, totally. Was, that's my name, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Her name is my name, too. <laughs> uh, she was born March 10th, 1947 in Port Alberni, British Columbia. In October of 1986, she won a seat in the provincial legislature as the social credit member for a Vancouver riding. Two years later, she left provincial politics and was elected to the federal parliament as a progressive conservative. In 1989... Oh, free from the threat of assassination. Yes. Prime Minister Brian Mulroney (laughs) appointed her minister uh, for what would now be Aboriginal Affairs. I think it still is Indian Affairs. Is it? That's unfortunate. And Northern Development. In 1990, she became Justice Minister and Attorney General. In that time, she helped strengthen Canadian gun laws and helped pass a tough rape law. Hold on. Okay. No, you are right. It has changed. Oh, okay. Wow. Is it Indigenous Why? Affairs? It's Indigenous and Northern Affairs. Okay. Which I'm honestly shocked. Mm-hmm. I'm shocked that it was actually changed. It seems like nothing changes. Right. Well, good. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Moving on. No, no, no. That's fine. A tough rape law. So speaking of great changes. Right. <laughs> Her appointment as defense minister in January of 1993 was seen as a signal of Mulroney's confidence in her political future. Doubling down on that, he retired shortly thereafter. Campbell was selected at a party convention to replace Mulroney and became Canada's first female prime minister in June of 1993. Hmm. 
In November, the Progressive Conservatives suffered a devastating electoral defeat. The party won only two seats, and Campbell failed to carry her own writing, and she left office. The following month, she resigned as party leader. That uh, election was the one that saw Jean Chrétien win mm. uh, a majority for the Liberal Party. Yep. The opposition, the party that finished in second, was the Bloc Québécois. That's insane to me. Yeah, so it was uh, all of, there was a reform party that was kind of splitting things with the Conservative Party. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a weird time. Uh, it's like it's it's an interesting political time machine to go back and look at. Uh, not even twenty years later. Well, it's sorry, not even thirty years later. Yeah, I was like, please. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the party won. The party winning only two seats. Mm-hmm. That's insane to me. What did Alberta just not count? <laughs> like it seems like there's nothing that you can do in Alberta, and it not be the majority blue. Um, I also want to say, so that is basically all about Kim she or Avril. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very short story. We could have not done a whole podcast on her. I will say, Kim, Avril, if you're listening, you got to revamp the website. You mm. got to revamp the website. It doesn't look that great. Uh, it looks like maybe you made it in 2007 and then just kind of added shit to it, but never updated it. So... Um, if you're listening to this, I think that as Canada's only female prime minister, you should do something about that. Well, there you go. Free advice. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for uh, listening. Um, just going back and like oh, okay, doing... Sure. No, 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 no. It's fine. Uh, just going back and doing some um, research on, like, on her, it, it certainly seems like she's kept a pretty low profile mm-hmm. um, post- politics like there's not a, like she, she has worked in some committees and and some stuff but she has kept fairly quiet um also i was saying that to stall um it does seem like the majority of alberta went reform party which oh, is cool. the more conservative version of the conservative party oh great i'm glad i asked yeah Ugh. I was pretty sure that's how it went, um, but I just wanted to be sure. Reform Party? Uh-huh. For those who are not aware, um, according to Wikipedia, new source. New source. Uh, that's the reform, definitely a good one. The Reform Party of Canada was a right-wing populist and conservative federal political party in Canada that exi- uh, existed from 1987 to 2000. Reform was founded as a Western Canadian-based protest movement that eventually became a populist conservative party with strong Christian right influence and social conservative elements. It was initially motivated by the perceived need for democratic reforms by profound Western Canadian discontent with the progressive conservative federal government of Brian Mulroney. Uh, led by its founder, Preston Manning, throughout its existence. Do you ever think that BC gets annoyed at us for being like profound Western outrage? And they're like, <laughs> hi. Yeah. Hey. We literally are the most West. And mm-hmm. we're not that mad. Mm-hmm. We're actually kind of happy because we're not better. Sorry, this uh, next line. Reform was considered a populist movement that sometimes gained controversy for statements made by its members on matters of immigration, LGBT issues, and Quebec. (laughs) 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 Oh my gosh, they really just checked every box, didn't they? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So anyway, uh, those are the ones. Fuck, I hate it here. (laughs) Uh, Those are the ones who... um, 
split the conservative vote rather greatly. Yeah, um, two seats. That's insane to me, seeing how this out. last election went. Mm-hmm. And the one before that was almost the same. But just to hear that they only got the two seats, yeah, I'm like, whoa. Yeah. That's wild to think that they could only get two. Mm-hmm. Anyways, thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. Thank you for allowing us to delay the second half of this podcast yes uh so 27 and a half uh came out so this will just be full 27 27 and three quarters maybe right (laughs) so thank you for downloading uh coming back week after week and what are we going to do next week peter as in in a few days world war one whoa we're finally gonna do it yes wow yeah, I um I forgot how much went into doing the World War II podcast. Um, and having already done a lot of World War One, it's a lot. So it's a lot, yeah. Buckle it was, up. It's a war that involved the world. It's a little more intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and th- this is the first one. Um, so and this yeah. was the first one, right? Yeah, it's some of this stuff is funny. <laughs> uh, like I mean, it's not funny that there was a war, but there's right. a couple of like. Just showing how different the world was even back in World War One compared to World War Two. Yeah. It's, there's a couple notes where it's like, oh, shit. Okay. We're not super far removed from muskets. So Are there okay. horses? Um, so many horses. There are horses. One so of, many horses. You want to know one of the, the things, like spoiler alert for one of okay. the, the jokes that we're going to have? The plane was only invented like 10 years earlier <gasps> or like perfected, really. Horses on planes? I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to say invented, <laughs> but. Um, Discovered? Er, Air travel was not great to the point they were still working on how to use military fighter planes yeah. because they hadn't figured out the problem of, okay, we got these propellers and we got these guns, but these guns are shooting off our own propellers, which is an issue when you're 100 feet in the air. So that was a thing they had to work out in World War One. So I would suggest horses are a big part of this, yes. I have access to the world on a rectangle brick that I keep in my pocket. Mm-hmm. How? How was this ever a time? (laughs) How was that ever a thing? Anyways, thank you for downloading. Thank you for coming back week after week. We really appreciate it. We love doing the show. And we can't wait to tell you uh, all about World War I. And horses. And horses. (laughs) Bye. Bye.